And I think that when a person or a group of people go to a place that is not what you are accustomed to and you have to be there for a significant amount of time, like a month, two months or longer, if you humble yourself and recognize that some of how you get along in this space is actually up to you, you'll start to behave a little bit differently. I'm not saying you will capitulate if you're confident and secure in who you are, but you just won't walk in with the judgment of black people don't rock climb. Black people don't whitewater raft. Black people don't hike. Black people don't bike. Black people don't camp. Oh, that's when the Boy Scouts came back out because I went camping as a Boy Scout. See, so I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of the outdoors. Even up in Montana where that was like, where I was is a corridor of grizzlies coming into the country. But anyway, I still wasn't scared because I understood some of where, of where I was. Black people don't rock climb. So when my coworkers would tell me of activities that they were doing, you got a choice. You can sit at home and be bitter and listen to hip hop by yourself and read a book and be as pro-black as you want to. Or you can still be pro-black, still be who you are, and you can go out here and learn something new and see if this is something that you're into. What's going on, everybody? You are now listening to Dr. Thomas Rashard Easley. I'm a hip-hop artist, forester, and assistant dean of community and inclusion at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Welcome to the Heartwood Podcast. On this episode, I'm telling my story. From a backyard forest in Birmingham, Alabama, to a forestry degree from Alabama A&M University, that stands for Agricultural and Mechanical, everyone, to a forest crew in Montana, and now here as a bulldog at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I think it's important that you understand who I am, where I get my values, and the people and places that have taught me the most in the world. And as always, you can send me your feedback or suggestions to thomas.easley at yale.edu. I really do hope that you enjoyed this episode. Thank you. Thomas Easley is the child of Thomas and Marion Easley. I come from Birmingham, Alabama. That is home, or that's my origin. And growing up there, I was fortunate to grow up with my grandparents on my mom's side. I did not know my grandparents on my dad's side. I never got to meet them. They had passed away by the time I had come into the earth. And my grandparents, so, well, I'm from Birmingham. That's the biggest city in the state of Alabama. It's the most urban city in the entire state. And I, one of my first and fondest memories is growing up at my, at my grandparents' house and hanging out with them in North Birmingham. And they live right off of the side of I-59. So it's a major highway. You can hear cars, trucks all, all night. However, when you go, when you went into that backyard, you didn't hear that anymore because for some reason, they figured out that we're going to protect our garden, we're going to block it, but not so that people won't see it, but so that we can manage it better. So there were three gardens in the backyard, and, and it's, that's how big the backyard was. And they grew everything from turnip greens, collards, squash, maybe cabbage one year, carrots, tomatoes, spinach. So this was all in the backyard. So I grow up 
And whenever I get hungry, I go, hey, grandma, because grandma did the cooking. I'll just be honest, she did the cooking. I'm hungry. And there were times when she'd just be like, go outside and get something. Bring it in here and we, and we will prepare it. So then they taught me where the food came from because when I would go out and get it, they said, oh, wait a minute, how do you know that's good or not? How do you know that it's ready for you to eat? And then they would explain, after that, here's how you have to plant. And this is how you have to prepare the soil so things will grow. They say dirt. Like, you know, they're, they're just talking in common vernacular. It's not until I become a forester later in life and I realize everything that's happening on the ground. But to them, uh, and, and, I, and, and I promise you, I, I, I know that I'm not misspeaking in what I'm about to say. To them, it was simple and they probably didn't even think it was intelligent, what they were teaching me, because it was common sense to them. They, they, neither one of them had graduated from school, uh, from middle school or like high school, but they're teaching me how to feed a family. And to me, that's real intelligence. You can work with people. So I got that from my grandparents. My love for the outdoors started with them. So when I go outside now, it's like I'm walking with my grandma and my granddad sometimes. You know, they would sit on the front porch and I would just sit out there with them, you know. And then my grandma took care of kids. So um, it would be all of us, like playing on the porch. You know, I, I, got, I have extended family of people who don't even look like me you know, because I grew up with them. So that's where my love for the outdoors really started, was with my grandparents. Going into forestry wasn't planned. It, in some ways, was an accident. But that's how my life has always been, up until about age 33, and I'm 40 now. Meaning that things happen, and as they happen, I just make the most of it when it's happening. And then it wasn't until then things started to come together, like, oh, so there was, there, in my head, there wasn't a connection for years between my grandparents and forestry. There wasn't even a connection between the Boy Scouts, and I'm an Eagle Scout in forestry. There wasn't a connection between gardening and forestry. So when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do anyway. I, I had no plan. The only goal I had is don't end back up in Birmingham, Alabama, do not want to live in my parents' house, and I want to make money. So it's about survival. That's, that's really it. I couldn't say I wanted to be a doctor because at that time, I didn't know. Like at, When I was 17, I really didn't, did, I, did not know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life except for I knew what I didn't want to do, which was to live at home with my mom and my dad, which I ended up doing later in life. <laughs> but I did not want to live back home in Birmingham, and I did not want to be broke. I go to this summer program that was sponsored by the USDA, and it was sponsored at Alabama A&M University. Go Bulldogs. That's my undergrad institution. And I found out about it because there were a couple of reps who came to the high school. And that's another story that I'll share for another time because I also had gotten kicked out of school when I was younger too. So I'm in a different place learning from these people coming and talking about this opportunity at Alabama A&M. And then I, I, I heard it and I thought, okay. And it wasn't until I saw like the little flyer or something later hanging on my counselor's door that I said, okay, I'll fill it out. And I filled it out because what I saw was, I'm trying to remember, I think it was $2,500 I would make over that summer. For me, that's a lot of money because I was a sacker at a grocery store. Like, that's all I knew. Uh, and uh, so I, I filled it out because I was always a smart kid. I filled it out and I got in. And so the summer program was me engaging in research for, at that time, I will say two and a half, three months. And my project was around tissue culture. And my species that I was studying was Lobolali pine, Pinus tata. 
and we're looking at how to grow pine, loblolly pines faster for the purposes of not using or overusing our natural forest. Now, everything I'm saying to you now makes perfect sense. When I was 17, 18 years old, it, 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 the only thing that made sense was that, okay, a loblolly pine is a type of pine tree. I didn't know that there were different kind of pines at the time. And we have what? We're exploring a tree? And we're exploring this genetics? And we're altering the genetics for our purposes, for, for what we want? That's fascinating. Man, that's Star Trek and Star Wars all at one time. I'm like, yes. Dr. Rafina Ward, she was my mentor, so and she's just an outstanding professor. Still, still live, lives in Huntsville, and her husband, Dr. Ken Ward, was a faculty at the camp on, on the campus. And she would give me books and stuff to read. My comprehension was real low at that time, so she would break it down for me when I would come in. But I had to come in and ask questions. She didn't just give it to me. I would read, and then she'll say, "Okay, now apply what you read." over here in the hood, and I'm like, oh man, okay, well, okay. So what I appreciated is that she didn't just give me work, which when I started school, I noticed that a lot of professors would do that. That's why I know the difference, in my opinion, between a master teacher and just a professor. Okay, a master teacher opens him or herself up to you. That's what made me fall in love with forestry, were the professors that I had. Like, they were so open with us. And here's why that's really important for me to say that, because I was at a historical black university and most of all my professors were white. So the fact that they would help us really embrace forestry for me was a big deal because they're at this black school teaching black students. And it really was, it wasn't even majority black students actually. It was people from around the world. It was a few of us black students in the, in the major. So I'm at a black school in a major where you don't see a lot of black people, right? And my professors, Dr. George Brown was one of my favorite professors still. He was my biometry teacher. Everybody was scared of biometry. And he was my intro to forestry professor. And he was one of my favorites. He just, and it was crazy how Dr. Brown also either got his master's or his doctorate from NC State. It's funny, remember I said, well, how earlier, as I mentioned, many things in my life were not planned. So I had no idea that North Carolina State University was going to be significant in my life down the line. I had, it didn't, I didn't even know what a master's was. So, but my intro into forestry was that. Now here's what solidified it, at least with school. When I finished doing my research project, representatives who were based on, at, at Alabama a and campus, helped trying to diversify the Forest Service said, if you're a major in forestry, we will give you a scholarship. And the scholarship, I went there to make $2,500, tuition was only $2,500. And we'll pay for you to go to school, and then you come work for us after after you were done. It, it was an easy choice. Mom and dad couldn't pay for school. I said I did not want to go back to Birmingham, Alabama. So if this is what it takes for me to not go back home, then this is what I'll do. And that's how my entry into forestry started. Like it start it started there. Over time, I started like. I was started juxtaposing, oh, my Eagle Scout experience with my forestry, you know, it, 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 over time it came together, you know, but it was always a disconnect for me. So when I learned forestry, I learned how to harvest wood. Don't get me wrong, it's fun. Don't get me, it is fun, man, don't get me wrong, it is fun. When you out there with chainsaws and shaps and hard hats, man, and those orange vests, and you know what you're doing, you know, you, you're, you're you're taking increment cores and you know you're measuring the DBH and 
um, you know, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you how, how, how much, how, how much boarfoot is in this tree. And I'm going to tell you how, I'm going to tell you how much I can get off of this acre or this acreage of land. Like th that's fun. Uh, and so learning how to do that, you become a pro if you really embrace it. You become a pro at harvesting wood. You become a pro at writing management plans. You also can become a pro at developing uh, environmental impact assessment statements, okay? Um, impact, environmental impact statements. And so when I started working in the field, and my field work really started in Montana, okay? So I was based in Bozeman, Montana, and then I was based again uh, at another time in Red Lodge, Montana. Being in Montana, was really different for me because I was the only black person in the county. Not just in the city, but in the county where I was. And I'm in a state, I am in a state that's beautiful, big sky country. I've been to most continents. It's rare to find a place that has a sky that looks like a Montana sky. I'm telling you, because the stars, you can look up, it's like you can grab them. Like, that, that, I got one, you know. So I really enjoyed being in Montana. It was challenging at the same time because I was the only black person. So something happened to me while I was there. I had to learn to get along in the place that I was working in. And I think that when a person or a group of people go to a place that is not what you are accustomed to and you have to be there for a significant amount of time, like a month, two months or longer, if you humble yourself and recognize that some of how you get along in this space is actually up to you, you'll start to behave a little bit differently. I'm not saying you will capitulate if you're confident and secure in who you are, but you just won't walk in with the judgment of black people don't rock climb, black people don't whitewater raft, black people don't hike, black people don't bike, black people don't camp. Oh, that's when the Boy Scouts came back out because I went camping as a Boy Scout. See, so I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of the outdoors. Even up in Montana where that was like, where I was is a corridor of grizzlies coming into the country. But anyway, I still wasn't scared because I understood some of where, of where I was. Black people don't rock climb. So when my coworkers would tell me of activities that they were doing, you got a choice. You can sit at home and be bitter and listen to hip hop by yourself and read a book and be as pro-black as you want to. Or you can still be pro-black, still be who you are, and you can go out here and learn something new and see if this is something that you're into. And who would have thought that I would be a better rock climber than my coworkers? I was a better hiker than my coworkers. I lost weight faster than them. I rode bikes better than them. I started swimming fat. Like everything changed. Like I saw that, hey, I could do this. Even skydiving, I've done that. Hey, so now all the myths of what black people don't do, for me individually and personally, I'm breaking that. So it's changing for me. It's like, oh, I can do this, I can do this, I can do that. What makes it challenging is when you go back home and you tell your family that you're doing that. You can't be a prophet in your own land usually. And I'm telling my mom and my dad what I'm doing and I'm telling my friends back home. And that's when I went home because I remember I said I didn't want to go back to Birmingham. So I didn't go back home often once I left. I still don't now. But when I would go back home and try to talk to people, they didn't understand what I was saying. They, they, it, was, it was to the people who thought that they knew what I should be doing with my life, it sounded crazy what I was saying to the people that were curious about what I was doing that sounded fascinating, like they wanted to know more. So, I've, so I grew accustomed to talking to people who don't agree with me and who do agree with me. That's why I don't mind talking about tough subjects because my life has been a tough subject. To be a forester talking to people, your own family who don't get it, that's challenging. But that, but that's, that was my entryway into forestry and learning how to navigate this landscape as an African-American or as a black man. 
Um, I learned how to do that living in a place where I was one of the only. So I don't carry the same anger or the frustration that I think a number of people have when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because not only did I have to embrace where I was, I had to actually embrace myself to be where I was. So I had to learn who I was. I, I had to become more comfortable with my blackness. I'm, I'm, I am in Montana playing outcast for people. At the time, they didn't even, outcast is now known around the world. But I'm up in Montana playing outcast AT aliens, throw your hands in the air. My coworkers and other people coming by like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, this is outcast AT aliens. I'm saying it to them like they don't want to hear it. Oh, this just outcast AT aliens. Hey, turn that up. Okay. I like that. So now my coworkers who are white are saying that they like outcast. So then reciprocity is very important. I started learning that immediately with that, right? So if you're going to listen to me, hey, what's that, collective soul? Can I listen to that? Oh, this world I know. Oh, I like that. Hey, Patsy Klein, country. Mm. <gasps> That's the woman that died. I want to listen to her. Hank Williams, I already listened to him. My granddad listened to him. You see? So I naturally start evolving while talking to people. Oh, and then, by the way, I got up the mountain faster than y'all. What's up? You can't say black people are late. So it's like everything starts changing. Like the whole, I'm having fun and I'm doing it. So what happens is I become an outdoors person. Like it becomes me. And so now I'm not afraid of it. So when it was time to go into the academy and talk about diversifying the field of forestry, I thought that's, that's for me. I can do it, right? Because I can show people about me, but that's actually not the only way of bringing diversity into the field of forestry. Hip hop and forestry, to me, they come together. For most people, I think at first it, it won't but that's what I'm here to, to show how I think that they, this is a great couple. As a forester, I love the land, but as a hip hop artist, I love the people. Forestry is about managing the land, but it's really also really about the people. Hip hop tells the story of the struggles of people. Forest hold the stories and struggles of people. Hip hop teaches you visions of how to get out of the struggles of the people. Forestry or forest is one place where you can go to not only get your life, but to save your life. And to me, hip-hop lessons save your life. So it's a natural marriage anyway to, to me. But how I brought it together was because of what students taught me. So as a professor when I was at NC State, I was fortunate enough to teach seven classes, designed about five of them. But this one that I didn't design, I redesigned. And it was an intro class for, it was targeting students of color. But what I'm proud to say is I taught my class to everybody. everybody. Every class I taught, everybody was welcome in my class. It's also why I was exhausted from teaching every now and then because everybody kept signing up for my class. And I'm like, okay, I was supposed to be teaching black. Okay, now I got a white person in the class. Okay, so then we're going to do what we can to make this person feel comfortable too. That's why I started learning about the nuances of a classroom. because, And I, just, and I got that from my mom. My, because my mom was a school teacher. I watched how my mom would teach children from all backgrounds. And... I would watch a show love to Latino kids. But my mom can't speak Spanish. But she's still like, we're going to help you, Jose. You're going to do. So I'm watching my mom do that, right? But she's a black woman who's a civil rights activist who cares about the struggles of black people. But she did it with all, all children. And I went, okay. So that's why I got the, the notion of connecting with everybody, watching my mom do it in the classroom. And she, and she, and she still is an outstanding teacher. When you're teaching 17 to 18 year olds, 
and they think they know pop culture or they know pop culture, they love to come off in the class. And every now and then they'll say, I can sing. I can rap. But how many of those students can be in a class and say, I can sing, I can rap, and actually have a professor who probably they can rap with or who probably raps better than them? How many students can say that, I sing, and have a professor who can actually go, you can, huh? You want to get on this song and sing? So what I did was I started to use hip-hop as an incentive for students to perform well in school. And I had the only class at NC State by the time I left, because this is an intro class, it was really a student success class. It, it's called University Studies Course 110. So it's to help students be successful in school. I had the only class for three years in a row. All my students had 3.8 GPAs or higher after their first year. The only school that had that three years in a row. Three years in a row. And before I came there, our school was never recognized for that because we didn't have a lot of students of color that came into our college. So that was how, that's one sign of my success is that it changed. We started bringing in students and we started getting awards because the percentage just started showing. But it was when, here again, I just paid attention to what the students would do when they graduate or when they finish my class, I should say, and then I take them to the studio. You should see how they are in the studio. They're nervous at first, but then they're so free, like, Okay, like after they get comfortable and you see them behind the mic, I'm like, man. And there was a, one time in the studio, my, my student who's kind of becoming a star now, Mr. Rail, said, you know, you should do this with kids when you talk to them. Look how you got us. I went, that's an idea. And then my mentor, another one, Dr. Rupert Nacoste, he was at NC State, he said that to me one time. He, he heard one of my songs online and he was like, Thomas, why don't you open up your classes with hip hop? And I said, because I don't want people to think that I'm trying to, you know, shame, shamefully get people to buy my hip-hop in class. I'm not like that. He said, no, you're using your talents to get the attention of the people that you're trying to reach. See, master teachers open themselves up yet again. So I said, okay. So when I went, so when I opened up my first class, I opened up with 16 bars. And the students just never let go of any word that I said. And they were just like, hey. I even saw them texting and like, hey, man, this dude can really rap. Like, I saw the Facebook and I'm like, did and this, that's when I also told my students, don't text while you're in my class. But at the same time, thanks for that compliment, brother. Uh, <laughs> and then I would go out and try to recruit people. This is where it came together, when I would go out and recruit and try to bring people into the, into the field or try to get people interested in our field, and I would open with hip-hop. And then these kids, man, they just, the foresters do that? And I'm like, no, I'm probably the only one. Hey, can I talk to you some more about music if I can talk to you about forestry? And then that's when I just said, hey, I'm just going to say hip-hop forestry. Let's just do something. When I said it, and I said it out loud at this function that I was speaking at, other people just grabbed it and was like, hey, why don't you do something about that? And I'm like, do something about what? Hip-hop forestry. I'm like, it's not even a real thing. They were like, well, why don't you make it a real thing? And it took me a year, and then I started making it a real thing. But that's how I connect hip-hop to forestry. Before I came to Yale, I was at NC State working real hard on diversity stuff. This one year, we did this event called Everyone Welcome Here Week, where we were doing programming to educate people around the issues that impact our family. That's what I call humans, our family, in the, uh, who identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning at the time. We, we, we said questioning at the time. And when we did this program, we hung up a flyer. It was myself and my coworker. And the first night, they tore the flyer down and put it back up. The second night, they ripped it down and put it back up. The third night, they cut it down, like 
Now you're pulling out weapons and cutting out stuff. We put it back up. They didn't touch it after that. But I was so nervous and scared at that time because for two weeks, I had coworkers who wouldn't talk to me, students who just walked by my office wouldn't speak to me, folks cursing me out. I would get phone calls in my office, people like calling me a bad Christian because they knew that, you know, like they know my religious affiliation or my faith practice. You're a horrible coworker. And I got it from all kinds of people. This wasn't a race thing. This was a sexuality thing. You know, for some people, this was a faith thing for them. And the one person I called was my mom. And I thought my mom was going to go off on me, right, because she's a Christian too. I thought my mom was going to uh, tell me, you shouldn't be doing that. It was her answer that really kind of led my life to why I do this. I said, I said what I said, and I said it in a way like my mom's going to be like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. So I was like, yeah, well, we're doing this event, mom. You know, we're trying to support people, and they just don't want to hear it. And I got myself ready for her to tell me that I was wrong. And then she went, that's the reason why you're there, babe. And I went, what? She said, you're dealing with discomfort for, what, a week, two weeks? She said, people got to live with that for their whole life. She said, and you know that because you're black. She was like, so look, just like people had to fight for us, and she said, I put my life on the line for you, you actually going to have to do it too to make this world a better place. She was like, somebody has, ha, has to do it. She said, and then, and I, I still remember this. I'm trying not to get emotional. I still remember this. She was like, and, I, and I'm just sorry that you have to be the one to do it. She was like, because we tried to, we tried to fight this, and now you're dealing with it. When your mom tells you something like that, it changes the central nervous system, especially when I was expecting something else, and here she is telling me, no, you're going to do that. You fight for all people. I had to do it too. So I'm here at Yale in the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies now, and I'm the Assistant Dean of Community and Inclusion. I'm going to admit, I do think that I have the hardest job in the school. I want to admit that. I, I have the hardest job. And there's not no disrespect to the dean or anyone else. I have the hardest job. When you have a job where you're here to challenge the culture of a place that doesn't want to change, that's hard. It's like being married to someone who doesn't, is not acknowledging his or her own blind spots. And you're trying to love them. That's hard. The other reason why it's hard is because when you come to a place like this, you're not brought in to align with the culture. You're not. You can't. Diversity doesn't work in the monoculture. It works in the multicultural developed space. So in a space that was created under one culture and you're trying to diversify, it's going to be hard. But here's the thing. While I'm here working to help diversify, mostly everybody else also is coming here adding diversity but for the most part, a lot of times what happens is people assimilate. We glean from your genius, but we acculturate you at the same time. So the other reason why my job is hard is because I'm not capitulating to the culture of this place. And that's everything from the timeliness of arriving to meetings even to the way that people dress. I'm not capitulating to that. Because I know for a fact, and research has shown it, that that's not who we really are. And I know for a fact, and other people know it, that they don't even want to do it too. They just fall into line and they do what they were hired to do or they do what they came here to do. So I'm happy to be the example for people, but that also means I have to take care of myself. So when you're doing this kind of work, reciprocity is very important. To be able to demonstrate that, you, 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 have, to, you have to demonstrate it. You have to show people that. Whatever, when it comes to the EI, whatever you want is what you should be doing. 
that's, in my opinion, that's rule number one. The reason you should do it is so when other people don't do what you want them to do, you're also recognizing, you see yourself in them because you're, you're recognized, I wasn't always here either. I wasn't always doing things either. So then it should hopefully prevent you or restrict you from always pointing the finger at other people too. And that's on every side. That's the people who are progressive, and of course that's subjective, and that's the people who are not. Everybody has to, that, that, those three fingers, and technically four if you count the thumb pointing back at you, is so important because everybody is part of the problem and everybody can be part of the solution. We're all complicit, everybody. Even the people who are progressive, who are fighting for the rights of people, they're also wrong on a certain level too because you're living in a bubble and you're trying to change the bubble when you should be trying to change the world. So the other reason why it's really hard is because you're trying to carry a message across to multiple people who either are comfortable or want to be comfortable in what they're doing. They think that they're right when on a certain level that they're wrong and they're completely unaware or they're somewhat unaware. And I'm also unaware. I'm ignorant too. I don't know things either. You know, but, and I know things too. So how do I walk? I walk in my experience and my scholarship. Most people walk in their scholarship. I walk in both because scholarship can't defeat experience. Scholarship can't expound on experience, but it can't defeat it. Because when you live something, you can talk about it as much as you want to. Because there's always a lesson to be learned if you go back to it. Always a lesson to be learned if you go back. What we try to do, I think, is we move so fast, we keep going forward. And what I hope that I can come here and help do is to help us to actually slow down and listen to each other, look at each other, hear one another, and value you because I see you like I see me. If we can do that in this place and around the world, you wouldn't have this, the problems that we have right now. You couldn't, because I'd be thinking about you before I'm thinking about me. You, you just couldn't. I, I wouldn't even try to consume what I consume if I'm thinking about you, if I know that it's gonna hurt you. So I think that community and inclusion at an outstanding place like this is gonna take time. Uh, it's going to take energy. Really, it's about giving people love because that's really what, because really that's what folks are hungry for. They can make it about the environment, which we don't have time to waste on that. We're talking about a world that we could be losing. And in some ways, we are losing. So we don't have time to play. But the other thing is that we're, if we're not careful, we could lose each other. Like, I don't want to lose a relationship with my students. I don't want to lose, but I don't want to lose a relationship with the community that I'm based in that I, if I lived a certain way, I'd be disconnected from. So we got to open ourselves. Like everyone has to open themselves. Faculty, staff, students, citizens, leaders. It doesn't matter because we're all a part of the problem, but we can all be part of the solution. I think hardwood is going to help us think about the solutions by looking at ourselves. Remember, heart and wood. The impact of your heart on the woods, the impact of the woods on your heart. We're connected to nature, whether people acknowledge it or not. And society is connected as well, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. And what I hope to do, or what we hope to do with this podcast called Heartwood, is to bring out a number of different views around community, inclusion, diversity, equity, access. Those five, community, inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. Because they're going to be different experiences that we can glean from, different understandings that we should be pulling from. And that's what there is on my side or opposition. And I want to be able to deliver messages that people will listen to and hopefully it'll, it'll touch them to, to either convict them and say I want to do something different or at least also touch them to go, okay, at least I'm in somewhat aligned. But this is not about perfection. This is only to help us see the greatness in each and every one of ourselves so we can do better in the world.
Hardwood is recorded at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies in New Haven, Connecticut. Hosted by Dr. Thomas Richard Easley and produced and edited by Mr. Chris Perkins. We'll see you next week.